Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. It will come as no surprise that a diagnosis of cancer brings with it many often overwhelming challenges, not the least of which is just being able to maintain normal day-to-day activities. We'll be talking about that and the other challenges. Joining me in studio are Dr. Teresa Schwartz, a breast surgeon with SLU Care and SSM Health, St. Louis University Hospital. Jocelyn Larson teaches at Missouri S&T, is currently undergoing treatment for breast cancer. Heather Salazar is a breast cancer survivor and president of Pink Ribbon Girls, an organization that helps provide basic services to women undergoing treatment. She joins us by phone. Thanks all so much for being with us. Jocelyn, good to see you again, doctor. Thank you. And Heather, good to have you with us. Thank you. Let me begin with you, Doctor. A couple of things going on. I, perhaps even at this moment, Governor Mike Parson is uh, proclaiming this Breast Cancer Awareness Month in the state of Missouri, which is new and uh, good to draw awareness to the issue. And also, I saw on television last night that apparently progress is being made on a vaccine specifically for breast cancer. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, I initially want to say it's exciting to see people in our government taking interest in breast cancer awareness. That always helps for uh, women and their family members to to at least have a conversation about breast cancer and anything that we can bring up by the governor of the state of Missouri always helps. But as for this vaccine, now these vaccines are coming out into clinical trials so we can actually start trying them on real patients instead of just in a lab. And the the type of vaccine that's coming out, it's uh, coming out of Mayo up in Rochester, Minnesota, and it's meant for women after they have undergone all treatment for breast cancer for a certain type of breast cancer, ones that have this HER2 protein in it. This vaccine is supposed to help stimulate their immune system so that it can prevent their recurrence. So, yeah, very exciting news from a vaccine side. And Jocelyn Larson, that must be very interesting and exciting news for you. It is interesting and exciting. Um, My particular breast cancer is HER2 negative, so that probably wouldn't be something that I could take advantage of. But the fact that that's moving in that direction is exciting for me. The fact that uh, they are working on this issue, and from time to time you do hear elements of progress, and obviously that's very good news. Absolutely. Heather, what do you make of it? Well, I'm excited because I am HER2 positive. So I'm 14 years out, and I was one of the first people to get Herceptin, the drug that was um, targeted just for HER2-positive breast cancer. So it is very exciting. It was a very aggressive kind of breast cancer, and um, they didn't have targeted therapies for it until you had metastatic disease. So all of the new things coming are very exciting. We'll be talking about Pink Ribbon Girls in just a moment, but I want to go back to Jocelyn and get an update. You've been with us before and talking and kind enough to talk and being public about uh, about your cancer, Jocelyn. Where are you right now in treatment? I'm more than halfway through my chemotherapy, so I have moved off of a more aggressive uh, combination of drugs, and I'm into a slightly less aggressive, but just different, I guess. I'm mm-hmm. on Taxol now. Um, and so I've got about six more weeks left of that. And so in about a month, I'll be talking with my surgeon to discuss options for surgery, either a lumpectomy or mastectomy. Not sure what we'll be choosing at that point. When is a decision like this made by a surgeon, doctor? It really depends on the patient. Mm-hmm. So in Jocelyn's case, she was able to have chemotherapy up front. And so that changes the decision-making tree. It may have been at the time of diagnosis that you wouldn't have been able to get a lumpectomy because if the cancer is too big or if it's taking up too much of the breast tissue, that a lumpectomy isn't possible. So what's great about doing chemotherapy up front for a lot of women is that we can reduce the size of the tumor that gives that woman some options about what mm-hmm. to pick. Because in terms of survival, whether you have part of the breast removed or the entire breast removed, 
there's no difference. So they're equally safe. So it really is a personal decision based on that individual patient and the tumor that, that she's being treated for. Jocelyn, what was the process like for you trying to, to weigh the, the decisions that you were going to be making? I'm st- I still go back and forth every single day. And, and it's good to hear you reaffirm that the, the lumpectomy has the same sort of results as the mastectomy. But it's hard for me to get that through my head. Mm-hmm. In my mind... I, I want to take all of the tissue off. I want to get it all out as much as I possibly can and just be done with it. But I know that that's not necessarily the case, that I wouldn't necessarily be done with it. You wouldn't have to, but honestly, a mastectomy is never a wrong answer. Okay. So if that's what makes you comfortable and gives you good peace of mind, a mastectomy is a perfectly adequate. 30 years ago, it's the only option we had. Right. So now having the lumpectomy as an option doesn't mean it's the right answer for you. It's just nice to know that you do have a choice. Right. Absolutely. Choices can be daunting sometimes. Exactly. <laughs> sometimes it's better just to be told like, hey, this is what has to right. happen. But at least there is a little bit more control in your court if you can decide which operation you would like. Right. Yeah. I came back, my genetic test came back negative for the, the gene and that was what I was going to use to make sure. my decision. And so when that came back negative, I was even more perplexed and, gosh, what am I going to do now? At least having the time during chemo, that gives you a chance to, all right, what do I really want? And Heather, I'm sure you can speak to this as well. It's definitely a a kind of a personal decision that no matter who talks to you or who gives you advice, um, that sometimes it's like, this is what my gut is telling me I need to do for me. Exactly. Yes. For me, yes. For me, I do think it's a really personal decision. And I think all of the facts that you shared obviously are correct. But for me, I think a mastectomy, I was so young, I was 31, and so it was just important for me to get, I think, not to be monitored so closely, but some people, you know, if I hadn't had children or I wanted to breastfeed or something like that, my options and choices would have been different. And of course, that was 14 years ago, or maybe even a little bit more. So your choices were were much different than women facing the same situation today. You're so right, exactly. And, And what was that process like for you? Well, for me, um, my story is a little bit different. I was a social worker in in the social uh, services field, and I had met a young woman that was dying of metastatic breast cancer, stage 4 breast cancer, and she was raised in the foster care system and looking for a home for her baby. So we ended up adopting this young baby um, at 10 months old and took care of her mom through treatment. And then the following year, I got the same kind of aggressive breast cancer as her mom did. So I was very scared and overwhelmed and kind of had to work through all of that process. The uh, Yeah, I, I just can't imagine going through that myself. Uh, and, and Jocelyn, I'm sure you relate to that very closely. Absolutely. The, the fear factor. Talk, yeah. talk about that. I mean... I can tell you at the beginning, we were terrified. Um, and we had to think about what does this mean for you know our kids? What does this mean for each other? And and for the first time, I'm 36. And I'm thinking, I better get on the ball and write a will. I don't have a, a will. I don't have a living will. Um, we all should anyway, by the absolutely. way. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Right, right. So, so now that I've been more through it, it's become more routine. Mm-hmm. And and I'm less afraid because I trust my care team so well. I'm less afraid that I'm not going to get through it. But what I've had to come to terms with was um, that since I've had cancer, I'm always going to have to be vigilant. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to be able to just kind of relax and think, okay, that's never going to happen to me because it already has and it might again. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Doctor, I'm sure that you hear a great many stories like the ones we have just heard here. What about the approach of the physician in these cases? I think there could be a tendency to be fairly clinical about it when it is such a personal thing and such a heart-rending thing that you have to be careful not to be too clinical. Yeah, I I probably um, hedge on the other side, to be honest. I, I definitely talk to everyone in the same way I would want someone to talk to me in response, how I would want them to talk to my mother, my sisters, anyone in my family, with just as, as much information, honest, and almost a bulletproof format. Like, here's what we're dealing with, and here's what our options are. Because at the time, by the time a surgeon sees you, you already have the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So I feel mm-hmm. like my job is to definitely empower them to kind of take the bull by the horns and be like, all right, I have this disease. What do we need to do? Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's my the biggest part of my job initially is to empower them with as much information as I can about their type of cancer and what the choices are, but also to make sure they know that they can tackle this. So I, I do less clinical chatter than, uh, all right, let's, let's just take this on. I'm sure part of the conversation has to include how disruptive it can be to day-to-day routine. It absolutely does, but I don't know that any patient realizes that on the on the initial visit with a surgeon because everybody's head is trying to wrap around, what does this even mean? And that's a lot of what that first surgical consult entails. It's kind of going through the pathology report, going through all the imaging, and trying to explain what the disease is actually telling me on paper. When I notice that how this is messing up my day-to-day is usually in the middle of chemo for sure, recovering from an operation, but even more importantly, a couple years down the line, whenever everybody else thinks you should be back to 100%, you feel like you should be back to 100%, and maybe you aren't. You know, Maybe you're not doing what you did before, so it's making sure we can adjust in the survivor mode. Heather, you sound like you want to say something. I just, I just think that you're right. It's the survivor mode. And the thing that I think Pink Ribbon Girls does that other organizations don't do is we come around you because the clinical side is something we can't help with. And that's why we have great physicians and great nurse educators and things like that. But we can help the, the part of you still need to be a mom. You still need to be a wife. Like, can we bring you meals? Can we clean your house? And can we make sure you get to treatment? And we know firsthand, like, breast cancer isn't prejudiced. We'll talk again in more detail about Pink Ribbon Girls in just a moment, but I want to ask Jocelyn about how disruptive all of this has been to your life. It's been pretty disruptive, and what's confusing about it is I never know how it's going to be disruptive. Every chemo infusion provides different side effects, mm-hmm. and uh, and some of them are cumulative. Like, I'm just now starting to get neuropathy in my, my fingers and my mm-hmm. feet, and so my fingernails hurt. And mm-hmm. so just something as simple as taking laundry out of the washer to put it in the dryer is painful for me, and I never would have anticipated that. Mm-hmm. You've, you've learned an awful lot about this, the disease, and also treatment, haven't you, yeah. uh, over the last months? Yeah, more than I ever expected to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I want to get to the Pink Ribbon Girls, and we'll do that in just a moment. But uh, let's take a break, and uh, we'll come back and uh, continue the conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Now back to our conversation with Dr. Teresa Schwartz, a breast surgeon with Sloop Care and SSM Health, 
St. Louis University Hospital. Jocelyn Larson is undergoing treatment for breast cancer. And Heather Salazar, joining us by phone, is president of Pink Ribbon Girls. To that subject, in just a moment, Jocelyn, let me come back to you with regard to how disruptive all of this is. Give me an example of today. How did you prepare to come up here from your home in Owensboro, right? In Owensville, yeah. yeah. Owensville, yeah. Uh, and uh, prepare for this. Was that difficult for you? Um, well, it's it's. I've gotten used to sort of my morning routine. Uh, showers t- are a lot shorter, but dealing with my head wraps takes a lot longer than it ever took me to, mm-hmm. you know, mess with my hair. Um, and, you know, just, again, dealing with just sort of the residual effects, the, the neuropathy in my hands and feet. I have to be more careful when I'm going up and down stairs now. Um, and uh, just exhaustion. And every so often this fatigue will hit me. Uh, I'm also dealing with uh, issues because my, my tumor is um, hormone-based. I have to my my hormones are essentially being shut down and um and you could probably explain that a little bit better than I could but but I'm kind of going through like a sense of menopause so I'm getting all of the the um uh, side effects of having menopause as mm. well. So that's been strange to have to cope with. Well, you mentioned a little earlier difficulty just to, in, in dealing with the laundry, for yes. instance. What, what about your day-to-day activities? Have they any or many been con- curtailed? But- a lot. And I'll tell you what's most difficult is I feel like in my head I should be doing those things. I should be able mm-hmm. to cook dinner. Uh, I should be able to clean the house like I used to be able to do. But either I get tired or, you know, it's painful um, and my husband has to take over. And there have been times when I've broken down to my husband thinking like I should be doing these things. Or, or not just I should be, but I want to be able to do these things. I want to feel normal again. And not being able to do just the normal household things is its difficult. We've pointed this out in the past, but your husband, John, is a member of the staff here at St. Louis Public Radio. And I can't think of too many people who would be better suited to keep people up, Absolutely. if you will, uh, during a, a time like this. Oh, yeah. He also used to be a bodybuilder and a nutritionist. So he's, yeah, he's keeping me well fortified. Well, the, body, <laughs> the body's gone to heck in a handbasket. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> But otherwise, he's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Heather, that brings me back to you because uh, the Pink Ribbon Girls is is an organization and a concept that I think would certainly be useful per, to Jocelyn, certainly has been to others. Tell us about it. So we're an organization. Um, we started six and a half years ago in, our, in Ohio, in our first city outside of the state of St. Louis. We provide three healthy cancer-fighting food meals for your entire family per week, two house cleanings per month, and as many rights to treatment as you need typically um, for early-stage breast cancer and gynecological cancers. If you're stage four or have metastatic disease, we give you a stipend of $3,500 to use for whichever services suits your family the best. And, And how many families are you working with? Well, so far from January to August uh, 30th, which is before we started in St. Louis, we have served 72,000 meals. We've given about 3,900 rides to treatment and 1,500 house cleanings. So in St. Louis, um, we're like two to three weeks in, and we're serving seven families so far. We've partnered with SLU Hospital, and that's about, I think last week we did about 120 meals. Wow, those numbers are really incredible. And, Doctor, you uh, have been involved in this, I know. You're, you're close to it. Tell us about it from your 
uh, perspective. No, I have. It's just an honor, first of all, to even hear Heather's story, but then to see what she's been able to build with this organization, because there are there are so many women, whenever you're initially diagnosed, Jocelyn and I were even talking about this before we came on the air, that you have this huge team of people around you. There's people coming out of the woodwork to help with the kids, to help with food, to help with getting you back and forth to treatment or to work. But then you're in treatment for a while. I mean, four to six months is a an average time for chemotherapy. For the, the treatment that Heather went through, I mean, it was a full, probably 18 months, Heather, unless it was just the, mm-hmm. the full 12. Yep. But I mean, that's a long time. And women just are not really primed to be like, hey, who's around to help me? And you honestly start to feel guilty. Like you're asking for help all the time or you feel like you should be able to do all the stuff at your kid's school, do all the stuff at your house, everyday activities. And it, you, sometimes you just can't pull it off. And what this group offers is it takes away that need to go ask for help. If we're able to get people linked in with Pink Ribbon Girls right off the bat, the system is already set in place. They don't have to go asking for anyone to do anything. It's already rolling at the time of diagnosis before they even realize what all they're probably going to need. So it is a huge resource for our patients here in St. Louis. Jocelyn, if that service were available to you, would you use it? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Because I could tell you that, yes, I, I definitely feel guilty when I have to ask for help. But really what it is for me is I'm so bullheaded that I think I don't have to ask for Mm -hmm. help. I can do this, and I often am not capable of doing it. So luckily I have people in my family who will sit me down and say, you're sitting down and we're not letting you get up and we're cooking dinner today. So I have that, but there's definitely times when I'm alone. John's working here, and, and it's kind of like me in the house, and I realize that there's something that needs to be taken care of that I should be able to do, darn it, but then I just can't. Mm -hmm. Heather, uh, how is this funded? I mean, obviously what you're doing uh, uh, represents a cost. And I also understand that the uh, initial funding, uh, there's a very interesting story behind that. Yeah, the initial funding, um, we got funding from SLU. We've gotten funding from Centene. Schnucks um, has agreed to donate 100% of the food for the meals, which is huge. That will cut our meal cost in half with our chef and our caterer. We've partnered with Holly Berry Catering, and they're going to prepare all of our food and things in in St. Louis. I'm sorry. And then um, how we are funded in Ohio is very similar, and we replicate the model, is that we we have um, corporate and and federal – corporate, I'm sorry, and family foundations. And then we have grants as well as community partners. Uh, We have this pink truck campaign in Ohio where these construction companies and businesses paint the trucks pink and pay us $10,000 per truck. We have 41 pink trucks like that in Ohio. And so we're just planning on to replicate um, how it goes in every city. We're give where you live. So all the money raised in each city stays in each city. We want it to be grassroots, and we want it the people and the businesses to support the community that they live in. Wasn't Ellen DeGeneres involved early on? <laughs> yes, she was. So the first the first way we started was um, Lester Smith is a billionaire out of Texas, and he had a pink well oil rig in Texas, and he agreed to give away a million dollars, and he was going to give away grants, up to twenty grants, and. only one per state. So I wrote the grant. We hadn't served a meal. And in the grant world, you typically don't get money if you don't have money. So I really wasn't counting on getting it. But I I wrote the vision and the mission. And he's a he's a businessman. And he goes, I believe in your mission. And I will believe I believe you will be able to make a difference. And so he announced the 20 winners on the Ellen DeGeneres show. And we were the only winner in Ohio. And then a local family foundation matched it, and that was our budget, our first budget of our first year, six and a half years ago. And then 
two years ago, he came back to Ohio and I showed him everything that we were doing and he spoke at our signature event and it was very just excited about the number of people and the number of meals that we're serving. Dr. Schwartz, what a story. I mean, this is just an incredible story. The numbers are just mind-boggling, and the the, uh, the way that it has taken off is is incredible. No, it's a, a huge nod to Heather for this. I mean, no. it's a, a tremendous amount of effort and foresight um, to be able to say, all right, what do women need in order to get through their treatment and be able to get back on their feet once this is all said and done? So she was able to pull from her own experiences and the experiences of other women who were going through treatment the same time that she was to say, all right, gosh, I'm realizing what everybody needs. But then to go out and find the people to fund it, because she's exactly right, trying to get grants, if you don't already have the system in place and money to fund it, you have a really low chance of pulling any money from any other site. So for her to be able to pull this off and build the group to the the level that it is now is just beyond impressive. Heather, what can people do who want to become involved or uh, would like uh, your help? Um, I always say we need doers, donors, and door openers. (laughs) So we need a lot of volunteers. We need people that will go out and pound the pavement for us and spokespeople. um, And we need uh, volunteers people coming around us, people that a lot of people do third-party events this month, you know, whether it's a hair salon that's doing a breast cancer fundraiser or the local pizza place. And, I mean, that raises a million dollars of our money in Ohio. So we're really looking for that community support in St. Louis. Um, We've already started off with a huge, I mean, a huge leap ahead compared to other cities, just with the support I mentioned that we have from those businesses. Um, And to Jocelyn's um, thoughts as well, for me, Jocelyn, it was hard to want to ask for help too. And it was so, it felt so awful and I had anxiety about it. And I think the one thing I do love about PRG is the the anonymity of it, like that the meals come to your front door. You don't necessarily know the cleaners. You don't have to get dressed if you don't feel well. And those are the things that I think benefit all breast cancer patients. Yeah, well, that uh, that's certainly a factor I hadn't thought of, but that would be an issue, certainly, wouldn't it? You want to don't want a lot of people to know what's going on. Oh my goodness, just you know the the nerves that I get when you know I have to answer the door for the mail guy or something like that. The fact mm. that I have to throw on clothes and you know cover my head yeah. and yeah, that would be amazing. Hey. So Heather, thank you from one pink sister to another. <laughs> thank you for for what thank you're doing. You. And you know it's it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and and I I always you know celebrated that as yes, let's be aware and and do more. Yeah research scientists um, exactly <laughs> but what you're doing is you're giving us a practical way to really give back and and you know not just sort of rely on science do your thing and so I'm grateful for that and I sure would be interested in getting involved myself I have an email okay. here I'm sorry Heather go ahead I said great we would love to have you Okay. Well, I hope you uh, are building some support here on the, as a result of this broadcast. We'll put a link to your website, by the way, on our website so folks can uh, learn a little bit more about you and have contact if, uh, if they choose to. I have here a, uh, an email from Elizabeth. It's rather lengthy. I've edited it, but she writes, Overall, my body, body handled the 12 chemo treatments and three weeks of radiation fairly well. I had a lot of support, but an unanticipated long-term side effect for me is to see how cancer has taken an emotional toll. Now, over 10 years out, I am often astonished to find myself crying over a cancer diagnosis of someone I don't even know or becoming anxious over routine illnesses. Heather, I'll go back to, with, to you on that. What, what is your reaction to that? Is this something maybe you've experienced? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm 14 years out, and when I go sit 
to go in for my annual check, I sit in the parking lot just ticked off that I have to go in or that I have to worry about it. You know, and the more you learn and the more you know, and I've talked to Teresa about this, like the new the new treatments coming up, you still worry. Like I was at a meeting at a conference a month ago that talked about a new drug for HER2 positive breast cancer and that people are, I always thought we were kind of safe not to reoccur after like five years or something, but they're finding this small percentage of people that are reoccurring and immediately, you know, your stomach hurts and you're worried about what you have to do, what you could have to deal with. I think it's a very real thing. How about you, Jocelyn? There's this, this emotional side of it, that emotional part. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I pretty much resigned myself to knowing that I, this is always part of my identity now. I will always have been a breast cancer patient and survivor, whatever phase I move into. It's always going to be a part of me. So when I hear about other people having to move into that, I know, I know what an emo- emotional upheaval it is to try to come to that acceptance. So I feel for them for sure. Yeah. I have an email here from a Gail in St. Charles. She says, my mom had breast cancer in 62 when she was only 30 years old and had three small children. At that time, the only treatment available was cobalt radiation, which made her terribly ill. Her surgeon did a very radical mastectomy. She just passed away at the age of 86 without ever having had a recurrence of cancer. We were very blessed by her care. Doctor, I, I mentioned that just to really show how treatment has changed over the years. It's been very, very dramatic, hasn't it? And now we're talking about a vaccine. Absolutely. And the, the operation that she's speaking of in the 1960s was the only option that we had. We really didn't have good chemotherapy even back then that you could actually say was treating the cancer. But that type of mastectomy removed the entire breast, all the skin on the chest wall, plus the muscles of the chest wall, and then all of the lymph nodes even leading up to the neck. Huge operation. So the cobalt radiation on top of it definitely did a toll, I'm certain, on her chest wall and underarm area, not to mention the the organs behind it. Um, But everything that we have done since then, it's just increasing our, our efficiency, basically. So you don't have to do the biggest operation to expect the same type of outcome. We've definitely improved radiation. So instead of it being beams shooting straight through someone, they're kind of arced around the chest wall. So they're just going after where they're supposed to be instead of hitting everything else. And then chemotherapy, the number of clinical trials that have come out for breast cancer to show which chemotherapy regimens are the most effective is just astounding. Comparing that to any other type of cancer, I mean, we win by a mile. So we have come leaps and bounds since the, the 1960s for sure. It used to be that if somebody had cancer, they'd just cut off whatever, wherever the sure. cancer was, and that was that. You've got to be comforted, Jocelyn, by the fact that there so much progress has been made. Yeah, I got a little lightheaded when you were describing that original uh-huh. surgery. Oh. <laughs> I'm so grateful that we You will not forward. have that. Thank yeah. goodness for that. <laughs> and, and you too, Heather. Yes, yes. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for the, the um, new treatments and the new therapies. I really do believe, like Teresa said, we've come a really long way. We have indeed, and we want to thank you for what you're doing, Heather. I mean, it's just a remarkable program, and uh, I hope a lot of people are listening today to find out what you're doing and take advantage of it uh, if they need to. I want to thank you all so much for being with us. It's been a good discussion and, and a heartening discussion in so many ways. Jocelyn, wonderful to see you again. You look wonderful, as you always do. And Dr. Schwartz, thank you for being with us. And uh, Heather Salazar, thank you. Again, keep up that good work. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much.